Hello, and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel, and I am your host. To all of my original listeners, welcome back. To those new to the show, welcome. I am a storytelling historian with a great love for the Plantagenet dynasty, as I am a direct descendant to Geoffrey of Anjou via my paternal line on my grandmother Carter's side. I descend through Diana Skipwith, daughter of Sir Henry Skipwith and Amy Kemp. Diana married Captain Thomas Carter. They immigrated to the Americas in 1650, settling in Barford in Lancaster County, Virginia. So with that said, please like and download the show as it helps other listeners learn about the show. If you wish to support this podcast, there is a link for you to do so, and it would be much appreciated as it would help with costs of maintaining the website www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find the podcast as well as extra items for each episode you can read or download. You can also find great books and videos for sale as well. Feel free to also visit our Facebook page. A link is provided as well on the website. Okay, on to the episode. Chapter 10 of Richard I. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alana Jordan. Richard I by Jacob Abbott. Chapter 10. The Campaign in Cyprus. The time at length fully arrived for the departures of the English fleet from Sicily for the purpose of continuing the voyage to the Holy Land. Besides the delay which had been occasioned to Richard by circumstances connected with his marriage, he had waited also a short time for some store ships to arrive from England with ammunition and supplies. When the store ships at length came, the day for the sailing was immediately appointed. The tents were struck, the encampment abandoned, and the troops embarked on board the ships of the fleet. The Sicilians were all greatly excited as the sailing of the fleet drew nigh, with anticipations of the splendor of the spectacle. The harbor was filled with ships of every form and size, and the movements connected with the embarkation of the troops on board of them, the striking of the tents, the packing up of furniture and goods, the hurrying of men to and fro, the crowding at the landings, the rapid transit of boats back and forth between the ships and the shore, and all the other scenes and incidents usually attendant on the embarkation of a great army occupied the attention of the people of the country and filled them with excitement and pleasure it is highly probable too that their pleasure was increased by the prospect that they were soon to be relieved from the presence of such troublesome and unmanageable visitors never was a finer spectacle witnessed than that which was displayed by the sailing of the fleet when the day for the departure of it at length arrived the squadron consisted of nearly two hundred vessels in all there were thirteen great ships corresponding to what are called ships of the line of modern times then there were over fifty galleys these were constructed so as to be propelled either by oars or by sails of course when the wind was favorable the sails would be used but in case of calms or of adverse winds blowing off from the land when the vessels were entering port, or of currents drifting them into danger, then the oars could be brought into requisition. 
In addition to these ships and galleys, there were about a hundred vessels used as transports for the conveyance of provisions, stores, tents, and tent equipage, ammunition of all kinds, including the frames of the military engines which Richard had caused to be constructed in Sicily, and all the other supplies required for the use of a great army. Besides these, there were a great many other small vessels, which were used as tenders, lighters, and for other purposes, making a total number of nearly two hundred. In the order of sailing, the transports followed the ships and galleys, which were more properly the ships of war, and which led the van, in order the better to meet any danger which might appear, and the more effectually to protect the convoy from it. Richard sailed at the head of his fleet in a splendid galley, which was appropriated to his special use. The name of it was the Sea Cutter. There was a huge lantern hoisted in the stern of Richard's galley, in order that the rest of the fleet could see and follow her in the night. The day of sailing was very fine, and the spectacle, witnessed by the Sicilians on shore, who watched the progress of it from every projecting point and headland, as it moved majestically out of the harbor, was extremely grand. For some time the voyage went on very prosperously, but at length the sky gradually became overcast, and the wind began to blow, and finally a great storm came on before the ships had time to seek any shelter. In those days there was no mariner's compass, and of course in a storm, when the sun and stars were concealed, there was nothing to be done but for the ship to grope her way through the haze and rain for any land which might be near. The violence of the wind and the raging of the sea was in this case so great that the fleet was soon dispersed, and the vessels were driven northward and eastward toward certain islands which lie in that part of the Mediterranean, off the coasts of Asia Minor. The three principal of these islands, as you will see by the opposite map, are Candia, Rhodes, and Cyprus, Cyprus lying farther toward the east. The ships came very near being wrecked on the coast of Crete, but they escaped and were driven onward over the sea, until at length a large portion of them found refuge at Rhodes. Others were driven on toward Cyprus. Richard's galley was among those that found refuge at Rhodes, but unfortunately the one in which Berengaria and Joanna were born did not succeed in making a port there, but was swept onward by the gale and in company with one or two others was driven to the mouth of the harbour of Limassol, which is the principal port of Cyprus, and is situated on the south side of the island. The galley in which the queen and the princess were embarked, being probably of superior construction to the others, and better manned, succeeded in weathering the point and getting round into the harbour, but two or three other galleys, which were with them, struck and were wrecked. One of these ships was a very important one. It contained the Chancellor, who bore Richard's great seal. Besides a number of other knights and crusaders of high rank, and many valuable goods, the seal was an object of great value. Every king had his own seal, which was used to authenticate his public acts. The one which belonged to Richard is represented in the following engraving. As soon as the news of these wrecks spread into the island, the people came down in great numbers and took possession of everything of value which was cast upon the shore as property forfeited to the king of the country. 
The name of this king was Isaac Camnenus. He claimed that all wrecks cast upon his shores were his property. That was the law of the land. It was, in fact, the law of a great many countries in those days, especially of such as had maritime coasts bordering on navigable waters that were specially exposed to storms. Thus, in seizing the wreck of Richard's vessels, King Isaac had the law on his side, and all those who, in their theory of government, hold it as a principle that law is the foundation of property, and that what makes the law makes right is right, must admit that he had justice on his side too. For my part, it seems clear that the right of property is anterior to all law, and independent of it. I think that the province of law is not to create property, but to protect it, and that it may, instead of protecting it, become the greatest violator of it. This law providing for the confiscation of property cast in wrecks upon a shore, and its forfeiture to the sovereign of the territory, is one of the most striking instances of aggression made by law on the natural and indefeasible rights of man. In regard to the galley which contained the queens, that having escaped shipwreck, and having safely anchored in the harbor, the king had no protest for molesting it in any way. He learned by some means that Queen Joanna was on board the galley, so he sent two boats down with a messenger to inquire whether Her Majesty would be pleased to land. Stephen of Turnham, the knight who had command of the Queen's galley, thought it not safe to go on shore, for by doing so Joanna and Berengaria would put themselves entirely in King Isaac's power, and though it was true that Isaac and the people of Cyprus, over whom he ruled, were Christians, yet they were of the Greek church, while Richard and the English were Roman, and these two churches were almost as hostile to each other as the Christians and the Turks. Stephen, however, communicated the message from Isaac to Joanna, and asked Her Majesty's pleasure thereupon. She sent back word to the messengers that she did not wish to land. She had only come into the harbor, she said, to see if she could learn any tidings of her brother. She had been separated from him by a great storm at sea, which had broken up and dispersed the fleet, and she wished to know whether anything had been seen of him, or any of his vessels, from the shores of that island. The messengers replied that they did not know anything about it, and so the boats returned back to the town. Soon after this, the company on board the galley saw some armed vessels coming down the harbor toward them. They were alarmed at this sight, and immediately got everything ready for setting off at a moment's notice to withdraw from the harbor. It turned out that the king himself was on board one of the galleys that was coming down, and this vessel was allowed to come near enough for the king to communicate with the people on board Joanna's galley. After some ordinary questions had been asked and answered, the king, observing that a lady of high rank was standing on the deck with Joanna, asked who it was. They answered it was the Princess of Navarre, who was going to be married to Richard. The reply which the king made to this intelligence, Stephen of Turnham thought he saw such indications of hostility that he deemed it most prudent to retire. So the anchor was raised, and the order was given to the oarsmen, who had already been stationed at their oars, to give way, and the oarsmen pulled vigorously at the oars. The galley was immediately taken out into the offing. The king of Cyprus did not pursue her, 
so she anchored there quietly, the storm having now nearly subsided. Stephen resolved to wait there for a time, hoping that in some way or other he might soon receive intelligence from Richard. Nor was he disappointed. Richard, whose galley, together with the principal portion of the fleet, had been driven farther to the eastward, had found refuge at Rhodes, and he set off, as soon as the storm abated, in pursuit of the missing vessels. He took with him a sufficient force to render to the vessels, if he should find them, such assistance or protection as might be necessary. At length he reached Cyprus, and, on entering the bay, there he beheld the galley of Joanna and Berengaria, riding safely at anchor in the offing. The sea had not yet gone down, and the vessel was rolling and tossing on the waves in a fearful manner. Richard was greatly enraged at beholding this spectacle, for he at once inferred, by seeing the vessel in this uncomfortable situation outside the harbor, that some difficulty with the authorities had occurred which prevented her seeking refuge and protection within. Accordingly, as soon as he came near, he leaped into a boat, although burdened as he was with heavy armor of steel, which was a difficult and somewhat dangerous operation, and ordered himself to be rowed immediately on board. When he arrived, after the first greetings were over, he was informed by Stephen that three of the vessels of his fleet had been wrecked on the coast, that Isaac the king had seized them as his lawful prize, and that, at that very time, men that he had sent for this purpose were plundering the wrecks. Stephen also said that he had at first gone into the harbor with his galley, but that the indications of an unfriendly feeling on the part of the king were so decided that he dare not to stay, and that he had been compelled to come out into the offing. On hearing these things, Richard was greatly enraged. He sent a messenger on shore to the king to demand, peremptorily, that he should at once leave off plundering the wrecks of the English ships, and that he should deliver up to Richard again all the goods that had already been taken. To this demand, Isaac replied that whatever goods the sea cast upon the shores of his island were his property, according to the law of the land, and that he should take them without asking leave of anybody. When Richard heard this answer, he was rather pleased than displeased with it, for it gave him what he always wanted wherever he went, a pretext for quarreling. He said that the goods which Isaac obtained in that way he would find would cost him pretty dear, and he immediately prepared for war. In this transaction there is no question that the king of Cyprus, though wholly wrong and guilty of a real and inexcusable violation of the rights of property, had yet the law on his side. It was one of those cases of which innumerable examples have existed in all ages of the world, where an act which is virtually the robbing of one man by another is authorized by law, and is protected by legal sanctions. This rule, confiscating property wrecked, was the general law of Europe at this time, and Richard, of all men, might have considered himself a stop from objecting to it by the fact that it was the law in England as well as everywhere else. By the ancient common law of England, all wrecks of every kind became the property of the king. The severity of the rule had been slightly mitigated a few reigns before Richard's day by a statute which declared that if any living thing escaped from the wreck, even were it so much as a dog or a cat, 
that circumstance saved the property from confiscation and preserved the claim of the owner to it. With this modification, the law stood in England until a very late period that all goods thrown from wrecks upon the shores became the property of the crown, and it was not until comparatively quite a recent period that an English judge decided that such a principle, being contrary to justice and common sense, was not law, and now wrecked property is restored to whomsoever can prove himself to be the owner on his paying for the expense and trouble of saving it. On receiving the demand, which Richard sent him, the king of Cyprus, anticipating difficulty, drew up his galleys in order of battle across the harbor, and marched troops down to commanding positions on the shore, wherever he thought there might be any danger that Richard would attempt to land. Richard very soon brought up his forces and advanced to attack him. Isaac's troops retreated as Richard advanced. Finally, they were driven back without much actual contest into the town, and Richard then brought his squadron up into harbor and landed. Isaac, seeing how much stronger Richard was than he, did not attempt any serious resistance, but retired to the citadel. From the citadel, he sent out a flag of truce, demanding a parley. Richard granted the request, and an interview took place, but it led to no result. Richard found that Isaac was not yet absolutely subdued. He still asserted his rights, and complained of the gross wrong which Richard was perpetrating in invading his dominions, and seeking a quarrel with him without cause. But the effect was like that of the lamb attempting to resist or recriminate the wolf, which, far from bringing the aggressor to reason, only awakens more strongly his ferocity and rage. Richard turned toward his attendants, and uttering a profane exclamation, said that Isaac talked like a fool of Britain. It is mentioned as a remarkable circumstance by the historians that Richard spoke these words in English, and it is said that this was the only time in the course of his life that he ever used that language. It may seem very strange to the reader that an English king should not ordinarily use the English language, but, strictly speaking, Richard was not an English king. He was a Norman king. The whole dynasty to which he belonged were Norman-French in all their relations. Normandy they regarded as the chief seat of their empire. There were their principal cities, there their most splendid palaces. There they lived and reigned, with occasional excursions for comparatively brief periods across the Channel. They considered England, much as the present English sovereigns do Ireland, namely, as a conquered country, which had become a possession and a dependency upon the crown, but not in any sense the seat of empire, and they utterly despised the native inhabitants. In view of these facts, the wonder that Richard, the King of England, never spoke the English tongue at once disappears. The conference broke up, and both sides prepared for war. Isaac, finding that he was not strong enough to resist such a horde of invaders as Richard brought with him, withdrew from his capital and retired to a fortress among the mountains. Richard then easily took possession of the town. A moderate force had been left to protect it, but Richard, promising his troops plenty of booty when they should get into it, led the way, waving his battle-axe in the air. This battle-axe was a very famous weapon. It was one which Richard had caused to be made for himself before leaving England, 
and it was the wonder of the army on account of its size and weight. The object of a battle-axe was to break through the steel armor with which the knights and warriors of those days were accustomed to cover themselves, and which was proof against all ordinary blows. Now Richard was a man of prodigious personal strength, and, when fitting out his expedition in England, he caused an unusually heavy and large battle-axe to be made for himself, by way of showing his men what he could do in swinging a heavy weapon. The head of this axe, or hammer, as perhaps it might more properly have been called, weighed twenty pounds, and most marvellous stories were told of the prodigious force of the blow that Richard could strike with it. When it came down on the head of a steel-clad knight on his horse, it broke through everything, they said, and crushed the man and horse both to the ground. The assault on Limassol was successful. The people made but a feeble resistance. Indeed, they had no weapons which could possibly enable them to stand a moment against the crusaders. They were half-naked, and their arms were little better than clubs and stones. They were, in consequence, very easily driven off the ground, and Richard took possession of the city. He then immediately made a signal for Joanna's galley, which, during all this time, had remained at the mouth of the harbor, to advance. The galley accordingly came up, and Joanna and the princess were received by the whole army at the landing with loud acclamations. They were immediately conducted into the town, and there lodged splendidly in the best of Isaac's palaces. But the contest was not yet ended. The place to which Isaac had retreated was a city which he possessed in the interior of the island called Nicosia. From this place he sent a messenger to Richard to propose another conference, with a view of attempting once more to agree upon some terms of peace. Richard agreed to this, and a place of meeting was appointed on a plain near Limassol the port. King Isaac, accompanied by a suitable number of attendants, repaired to this place, and the conference was opened. Richard was mounted on a favorite Spanish charger, and was splendidly dressed in silk and gold. He assumed a very lofty bearing and demeanor toward his humbled enemy, and informed him in a very summary manner on what terms alone he was willing to make peace. "'I will make peace with you,' said Richard, "'on condition that you hold your kingdom henceforth subject to me. You are to deliver up all the castles and strongholds to me, and do homage as your acknowledged sovereign. You are also to pay me an ample indemnity in gold.' for the damage you did to my wrecked galleys. I shall expect you, moreover, to join me in the crusade. You must accompany me to the Holy Land, with not less than five hundred foot-soldiers, four hundred horsemen, and one hundred full-armed knights. For security that you will faithfully fulfill these conditions, you must put the princess, your daughter, into my hands as a hostage. Then, in case your conduct, while in my service in the Holy Land, is in all respects perfectly satisfactory i will restore your daughter and also your castles to you on my return isaac's daughter was a very beautiful young princess she was extremely beloved by her father and was very and was highly honored by the people of the land as heir to the crown these conditions were certainly very hard but the poor king was in no condition to resist any demands that richard might choose to make with much distress and anguish of mind he pretended to agree to these terms, though he secretly resolved that he could not and would not submit to them. Richard suspected his sincerity, 
and in utter violation of all honorable laws and usages of war he made him a prisoner and set guards over him to watch him until the stipulation should be carried into effect isaac contrived to escape from his keepers in the night and putting himself at the head of such troops as he could obtain prepared for war with the determination to resist to the last extremity richard now resolved to proceed at once to take the necessary measures for the complete subjugation of the island he organized a large body of land forces and directed them to advance into the interior of the country and put down all resistance at the same time he placed himself at the head of his fleet and sailing round the island he took possession of all the towns and fortresses on the shore he also seized every ship and every boat large and small that he could find and thus entirely cut off from king isaac all chance of escaping by sea in the meantime the unhappy monarch with the few troops that still adhered to him was driven from place to place until at last he was completely hemmed in and was compelled to fight or surrender they fought the result was what might have been expected richard was victorious the capital limassol fell into his hands and the king and his daughter were taken prisoners the princess was greatly terrified when she was brought into richard's presence she fell on her knees before him and cried my lord the king have mercy upon me richard put forth his hand to lift her up and then sent her to berengaria i give her to you said he for an attendant and companion the king was almost heartbroken at having his daughter taken away from him he threw himself at richard's feet and begged him with the most earnest entreaty to restore him his child richard paid no heed to this request but ordered isaac to be taken away soon after this he sent him across the sea to tripoli in syria and there shut him up in the dungeon of a castle a hopeless prisoner the unhappy captive was secured in his dungeon by chains but in honor of his rank the chains by richard's directions were made of silver overlaid with gold the poor king pined in this place of confinement for four years and then died as soon as isaac had gone and things had become somewhat settled richard found himself undisputed master of cyprus and he resolved to annex the island to his own dominions and now said he to himself it will be a good time for me to be married so after making necessary arrangements for assembling his whole fleet again and repairing the damages which had been sustained by the storm he began to make preparations for the wedding berengaria made no objection to this indeed the fright which she had suffered at sea in being separated from richard she had endured when after the storm she gazed in every direction all around the horizon and could see no signs in any quarter of his ship and when consequently she feared that he might be lost made her extremely unwilling to be separated from him again the marriage was celebrated with great pomp and splendor and many feasts and entertainments and public parades and celebrations followed to commemorate the event among the other grand ceremonies was a coronation a double coronation richard caused himself to be crowned king of cyprus and berengaria queen of england and cyprus too the dress in which richard appeared on these occasions is minutely described he wore a rose-colored satin tunic which was fastened by a jeweled belt about his waist over this was a mantle of striped silver tissue brocaded with silver half-moons he wore an elegant and very costly sword too 
The blade was of Damascus steel, the hilt was of gold, and the scabbard was of silver, richly engraved in scales. On his head he wore a scarlet bonnet, brocaded in gold, with figures of animals. He bore in his hand what was called a truncheon, which was sort of a scepter, very splendidly covered and adorned. He had an elegant horse, a Spanish charger, and whenever he went this horse was led before him, with the bits and stirrups, and all the metallic mountings of the saddle and bridle in gold. The crupper was adorned with two golden lions, figured with their paws raised in the act of striking each other. Richard obtained another horse in Cyprus among the spoils that he acquired there, and which afterward became his favorite. His name was Favel, though in some of the old annals he is called Faunel. This horse acquired great fame by the strength and courage, and also the great sagacity that he displayed in the various battles that he was engaged in with his master. Indeed, at last, he became quite a historical character. Richard himself was a tall and well-formed man, and altogether a very fine-looking man, and in this costume, with his yellow curls and bright complexion, he appeared, they said, a perfect model of military and manly grace. There is a representation of Berengaria, extant, which is supposed to show her as she appeared at this time. Her hair is parted in the middle in front, and hangs down in long tresses behind. It is covered with a veil, open on each side, like a Spanish mantilla. The veil is fastened to her head by a royal diadem, resplendent with gold and gems, and is surmounted with a fleur-de-lis, with so much foliage added to it, as to give it the appearance of a double crown, in allusion to her being the queen of both Cyprus and of England. The whole time occupied by these transactions in Cyprus was only about a month, and now, since everything had been finished to his satisfaction, Richard began to think once more of prosecuting his voyage. End of chapter 10 Recording by Alana Jordan in St. Louis, Missouri Chapter 11 of Richard I. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Federica. Richard I by Jacob Abbott. Chapter 11. Voyage to Acre. The great landing point for expeditions of crusaders to the Holy Land was Acre, or Acre, as it is often written. The town was originally known as Ptolemais, and the situation of it may be found designated on ancient maps under that name. The Turks called it Acre, which name the French call Acre. It was also, after a certain time, called Saint-Jean-d'Acre. It received this name from a famous military order that was founded in the Holy Land in the Middle Ages, called the Knights of St. John. The origin of the order was as follows. About a hundred years before the time of Richard's crusade, a company of pious merchants from Naples, who went to Jerusalem, took pity, while they were there, on the pilgrims who came there to visit the Holy Sepulchre, and who, being poor and very insufficiently provided for the journey, suffered a great many privations and hardships. These merchants accordingly built and endowed a monastery, and made it the duty of the monks to receive and take care of a certain number of these pilgrims. They named the establishment the Monastery of St. John, 
and amongst themselves were called hospitalers, their business being to receive and show hospitality to the pilgrims. So the monks were sometimes designated as the hospitalers, and sometimes the brothers of St. John. Other travellers who came to Jerusalem from time to time, seeing this monastery and observing the good which it was the means of effecting for the poor pilgrims, became interested in its welfare, and made grants and donations to it, by which, in the course of fifty years, it became much enlarged. At length, in process of time, a military order was connected with it. The pilgrims needed protection in going to and through, as well as food, shelter, and rest at the end of their journey, and a military order was formed to furnish this protection. The knights of this order were called the Knights Hospitalers, and sometimes Knights of St. John. The institution continued to grow, and finally the seat of it was transferred to Acre, which was a much more convenient place for giving succor to the pilgrims, and also for fighting the Saracens, who were the great enemies that the pilgrims had to fear. From this time the institution was called St. John of Acre, as it was before St. John of Jerusalem, and finally its power and influence became so predominant in the town that the town itself was generally designated by the name of the institution, and it has been called Saint Jean d'Acre to this day. The order became at last very numerous. Great numbers of persons joined it from all the nations of Europe. They organized a regular government. They held fortresses and towns, and other territorial possessions of considerable value. They had a fleet and an army and a rich treasury. In a word, they became, as it were, a government and a nation. The persons belonging to the order were divided into three classes. Knights. These were the armed men. They fought the battles, defended the pilgrims, managed the government, and performed all other similar functions. Chaplains. These were the priests and monks. They conducted worship and attended, in general, to all the duties of devotion. They were the scholars, too, and acted as sectaries and readers whenever such duties were required. Servitors. The duty of the servitors was, as they name imports, to take charge of the building and grounds belonging to the order, to wait upon the sick and accompany pilgrims, and to perform, in general, all other duties pertaining to their station. The Ramparts of Acre The town of Acre stood on the shore of the sea and was very strongly fortified. The walls and ramparts were very massive, altogether too thick and high to be demolished or scaled by any means of attack known in those days. The place had been in possession of the knights on St. John, but in the course of the wars between the Saracens and the Crusaders, that had prevailed before Richard came, it had fallen into the hands of the Saracens, and now the Crusaders were besieging it, in hopes to recover possession. They were encamped in thousands on a plain outside the town, in a beautiful situation overlooking the sea. Still farther back among the mountains were immense hordes of Saracens, watching an opportunity to come down upon the plain and overwhelm the Christian armies, while they, on the other land, were making continued assaults upon the town, in hopes of carrying it by storm, before their enemies on the mountains could attack them. Of course, the crusaders were extremely anxious to have Richard arrive, for they knew he was bringing with him an immense reinforcement. Philip, the French king, had already arrived, and he exerted himself to the utmost to take the town before Richard should come, but he could not succeed. The town resisted all the attempts he could make to storm it, and, in meantime, his position and that of the other crusaders in the camp was becoming very critical on account of the immense numbers of Saracens in the mountains behind them, who were gradually advancing their posts and threatening to surround the Christians entirely. Philip, therefore, and the forces joined with him, were beginning to feel very anxious to see Richard's ships drawing near, and from their encampment on the plain they looked out over the sea, and watched day after day, 
earnestly in hope that they might see the advanced ships of Richard's fleet coming into view in the offing. In the meantime, Richard, having sailed from Cyprus, was coming on, though he was delayed on his way by an occurrence which he greatly gloried in, deeming it doubtless a very brilliant exploit. The case was this. In sailing along with his squadron between Cyprus and the mainland, he suddenly fell in with a ship of a very large size. At first, Richard and his men wondered what ship it could be. It was soon evident that, whatever she was, she was endeavouring to escape. Richard ordered his galleys to press on, and he soon found that the strange ship was full of sarsens. He immediately ordered his men to advance and board her, and he declared to his seamen that if they allowed her to escape, he would crucify them. The Saracens, seeing that there was no possibility of escape, and having no hope of mercy if they fell into Richard's hand, determined to scuttle the ship, and to sink themselves and the vessel together. They accordingly cut holes through the bottom as well as they could with hatchets, and the water began to pour in. In the meantime, Richard's galleys had surrounded the vessel, and a dreadful combat ensued. Both parties fought like tigers. The crusaders were furious to get on board before the ship should go down, and the Saracens, though they had no expectation of finally defending themselves against their enemies, still hoped to keep them back until it should be too late for them to obtain any advantage from their victory. For a time they were quite successful in the resistance, chiefly by means of what was called Greek fire. This Greek fire was a celebrated means of warfare in those days, and was very terrible in its nature and effects. It is not known precisely what it was or how it was made. It was an exceedingly combustible substance, and was to be thrown on fire on the enemy, and such was its nature that when once in flames nothing could extinguish it, and, besides the heat and burning that it produced, it threw out great volumes of poisonous and stifling vapours, which suffocated all that came near. The men threw it sometimes in balls, sometimes on the ends of darts and arrows, where it was enveloped in flax or tow to keep it in its place. It burned fiercely and furiously whenever it fell. Even water did not extinguish it, and it was said that in this combat the sea all around the Saracen ship seemed on fire, and the decks of the galleys that attacked them were blazing with it in every direction. Great numbers of Richard's men were killed by it, but the superiority of numbers on Richard's side was too great, and after a time the Saracens were subdued, before the ship had emitted water enough through the scuttlings to carry her down. Richard's men poured it on board of her in great numbers. They immediately proceeded to massacre or throw overboard the men as fast as possible, and to seize the stores and transfer them to their own ships. They also did all they could to stop the leaks, so as to delay the sinking of the ship as long as possible. They had time to transfer to their own vessels nearly all the valuable part of the cargo, and to kill and drown all the men. Out of twelve or fifteen hundred, only about thirty-five were spared. When, afterward, public sentiment seemed inclined to condemn this terrible and inexcusable massacre, Richard defended himself by saying that he found on board the vessel a number of jars containing certain poisonous reptiles, which he alleged Saracens were going to take to Acre and there let them loose near the crusaders' camp to bite the soldiers, and that men who could resort to so barbarous a mode of warfare as this deserved no quarter. However this may be, the poor Saracens received no quarter. It might be supposed that Richard deserved some credit for his humanity in saving the thirty-five, but his object in saving these was not to show mercy, but to gain ransom money. These thirty-five were the emirs or other officers in the Saracens, or persons who looked as if they might be rich or have rich friends. 
when they reached the shore, Richard fixed upon a certain sum of money for each of them, and allowed them to send word to their friends that if they would raise the money and send it to Richard, he would set them at liberty. A great proportion of them were thus afterward ransomed, and Richard realized from this source quite a large sum. When Richard's soldiers found that the time for the captured ship to sink was drawing nigh, they abandoned her, leaving on board everything that they had not been able to save, and, with dropping to a safe distance, they saw her go down. The sea all around her was covered with the bodies of dead and dying, and also with bales of merchandise, broken weapons, fragments of the wreck, and with the flickering and exhausting remnants of the great fire. The fleet then got under way again, and pursued its course to Acre. End of chapter 11 Recording by Federica Centallo, Italy, 11th of January 2009Chapter 12 of Richard I. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alana Jordan. Richard I by Jacob Abbott. Chapter 12. The Arrival at Acre. While Richard was thus, with his fleet, drawing near to Acre, the armies of the crusaders that were besieging the town had been for some time gradually getting into a very critical situation this army was made up of a great many different bodies of troops that had come in the course of years from all parts of europe to recover the holy land from the possession of the unbelievers there were germans and french and normans and italians and people from the different kingdoms of spain with knights and barons and earls and bishops and archbishops and princes and other dignitaries of all kinds without number with such a heterogeneous mass there could be no common bond nor any general or central authority they spoke a great variety of languages and were accustomed to very different modes of warfare and the several orders of knights and the different bodies of troops were continually getting involved in dissensions arising from the jealousies and rivalries which they bore to each other the enemy on the other hand were united under the command of one great and powerful saracen leader named saladin there was another great difference between the crusaders and the saracens which was greatly to the advantage of the latter the saracens were fighting simply to deliver their country from these bands of invaders thus their object was won if any part of the army achieved a success the other divisions rejoiced at it for it tended to advance them all toward the common end that all had in view on the other hand the chief end and aim of the crusaders was to get glory to themselves in the estimation of friends and neighbors at home and of europe in general it is true that they desired to obtain this glory by victories over the unbelievers and the conquest of the holy land but these last objects were the means and not the end in the end in their view was their own personal glory the consequence was that while the saracens would naturally all rejoice at an advantage gained over the enemy by any portion of their army yet in the camp of the crusaders if one body of knights performed a great deed of strength or bravery which was likely to attract attention in europe the rest were apt to be disappointed and vexed instead of being pleased they were envious of the fame which the successful party had acquired in a word 
when an advantage was gained by any particular body of troops the rest did not think of the benefit to the common cause which had thereby been secured but only of the danger that the fame acquired by those who gained it might eclipse or outshine their own renown the various orders of knights and the commanders of the different bodies of troops vied with each other not only in respect to the acquisition of glory but also in the elegance of their arms the splendor of their tents and banners the beauty and gorgeous comparisons of the horses and the pomp and parade with which they conducted all their movements and operations the camp was full of quarrels too among the great leaders in respect to the command of the places in the holy land which had been conquered in previous campaigns these places as fast as they had been taken had been made principalities and kingdoms to give titles of rank to the crusaders who had taken them and though the places themselves had in many instances been lost again and given up to the saracens the titles remained to be quarrelled about among the crusaders there was particularly a great quarrel at this time about the title of king of jerusalem it was a mere empty title for jerusalem was in the hands of the saracens but there were twenty very powerful and influential claimants to it each of whom maneuvered and intrigued incessantly with all the other knights and commanders in the army to gain partisans to his side thus the camp of the crusaders from one cause and another had become one universal scene of rivalry jealousy and discord there was a small approach toward a greater degree of unity of feeling just before the time of richard's arrival produced by the common danger to which they began to see they were exposed they had now been two years besieging acre and had accomplished nothing all the furious attempts that they had made to storm the place had been unsuccessful the walls were too thick and solid for the battering rams to make any serious impression upon them and the garrison within were so numerous and so well armed and they hurled down such a tremendous shower of darts javelins stones and other missiles of every kind upon all who came near that immense numbers of those who were brought up near the walls to work the engines were killed while the besieged themselves being protected by the battlements on the walls were comparatively safe in the course of the two years during which the siege had now been going on bodies of troops from all parts of europe had been continually coming and going and as in those days there was far less of system and organization in the conduct of military affairs than there is now the camp was constantly kept in a greater or less degree of confusion so that it is impossible to know with certainty how many were engaged and what the actual loss of life had been the lowest estimate is that one hundred and fifty thousand men perished before acre during this siege and some historians calculate the loss at five hundred thousand the number of deaths was greatly increased by the plague which prevailed at one time among the troops and committed fearful ravages one thing however must be said in justice to the reckless and violent men who commanded these bands and that is that they did not send their poor helpless followers the common soldiers into a danger which they kept out of themselves it was a point of honor with them to take the foremost rank and to expose themselves fully at all times to the worst dangers of the combat 
it is true that the knights and nobles were better protected by their armor than the soldiers they were generally covered with steel from head to foot and so heavily loaded with it were they that it was only on horseback that they could sustain themselves in battle at all indeed it was said that if a full-armed knight in those days were from any accident unhorsed his armor was so heavy that if he were thrown down upon the ground in his fall he could not possibly get up again without help notwithstanding this protection however the knights and commanders exposed themselves so much that they suffered in full proportion with the rest it was estimated that during the siege there fell in battle or perished of sickness or fatigue eighteen or twenty archbishops and bishops forty earls and no less than five hundred barons all of whose names are recorded so they obtained what they went for commemoration in history whether the reward was worth the price they paid for it and sacrificing everything like happiness and usefulness in life and throwing themselves after a few short months of furious and angry warfare into a bloody grave is a very serious question as soon as richard's fleet appeared in view the whole camp was thrown into a state of the wildest commotion the drums were beat the trumpets were sounded and flags and banners without number were waved in the air the troops were paraded and when the ships arrived at the shore and richard and his immediate attendants and followers landed they were received by the commanders of the crusade's army on the beach with the highest honors while the soldiers drawn up around filled the air with long and loud acclamations berengaria had come from cyprus not in richard's ship although she was now married to him she had continued in her own galley and was still under the charge of her former guardian stephen of turnham that ship had been fitted up purposely for the use of the queen and the princess and the arrangements on board were more suitable for the accommodation of ladies than were those of richard's ship which being strictly a war vessel and intended always to be foremost in every fight was arranged solely with a view to the purposes of battle and was therefore not a very suitable place for a bride berengaria and joanna landed very soon after richard philip was a little piqued at the suddenness with which richard had married another lady so soon after the engagement with alice had been terminated but he considered how urgent the necessity was that he should now be on good terms with his ally and so he concealed his feelings and received berengaria himself as she came from her ship and assisted her to land End of chapter 12 Recording by Elena Jordan in St. Louis, Missouri